Good evening. Tell me if you can't hear me. This should work, though. Did you hear? How many people is this the first time that you're here? Is there anybody here for the first time? Welcome. Every time I come, I already am carrying some kind of question for myself. And so I end up sharing it. Um, it helps to talk about it and to, to feel a reflection of everybody's experience. Um, I've been asked by our little floating Zendo group in San Jose to give a talk, a series of talks on women and Buddhism. And so we're going to do three study groups, the first of which happens this Saturday. And I've been doing research on what life was like in Buddhist time, not just for women, but for everybody. And being so impressed with... um, the kind of, of life that people chose to live. And it was a choice. The home leaving was a choice. In fact, it upset some of the parents and spouses of the people who left, and they had to make special rules about it, that you couldn't just walk out and follow Buddha. You had to go and ask permission first, um, because uh, they actually cleared out villages of half the population as people just became moved by what they heard and took off. That was one way that people lived the practice back in those days. But another way was lay life. As Buddha came to town, um, many people provided, uh, were were very pleased for the opportunity to provide a meal or robes or medicine. Um, The thing that strikes me is how the meditation practice itself became so uh, infused in the population, whether it was um, a lay Um, housewife who was putting out a spread for everybody or um, uh, a monk who had gone off to a cave to sit by himself for a long time. That something spoke to people. Something was felt by people. And not just the teaching or the so-called preaching of Buddha, because he didn't really preach. He answered questions, or he picked up a subject and discussed it and kind of explored it. But something happened between uh, people, 
And in those days, if people wanted to join and become a nun or a monk, they would just go to Buddha and say, please, and he would say, come. And then lived the most amazingly simple life with a, a needle and a bowl and a couple of robes and a razor and I think a, a coin to pay for their um, uh, incineration. Pretty simple. And sometimes when Buddha was talking with someone, um, he would he would get to the end of the talk and realize that there was nothing more to say. And he would say, look, there's a tree right over there. Why don't you just go and sit under it? Or there's a little hut over there. Why don't you go and just spend a while in the hut? Our lives are so much more complicated than that. Um, in some ways, we're very much luckier. We're not walking in our bare feet and trying to find a place to stay in the monsoons. Um, But as it was for them, our, our challenge is to find some way of, of living our so-called practice. I used to know a teacher who would say every time he sat down, he would say, now, how is your practice today? You sort of think, hmm, it's sort of like a little dog or something. How is my little dog today? It's hard to see what our practice is, where it is, and and actually how it is. How is it that we do this untalkaboutable thing? How in this world, in this age, do we express this deep longing in us and this enormous gratitude we're lucky lucky to have a place like this to come to but we have a place like this to go from and it's the going from part that's sometimes a hard part I have a friend who um, called me not long ago and was plagued by uh, sort of anguished thinking, you could say. Uh, You know the way your mind gets stuck somewhere and just goes around and around and around the same subject without any resolution and with greater and greater pain. She thought of all kinds of ways of dealing with it. Um, She had prayers that she said, and um, she sat a lot. She was reading also, 
reading a lot of things. Thich Nhat Hanh was very helpful, especially about anger. He has a wonderful book about anger. But none of it really helped very much. And then as she was talking about it, she said, well, you know, mindfulness doesn't even help. It just keeps breaking in on me all the time. I, I think I know wh- how it feels to be where I am, and then uh, it's all going on again. So I said two things. One is, um, if it's really obsessive, that it's well to find someone to talk to, um, some kind of practiced therapist of some kind. Um, sometimes there's so much trauma that it's hard to get beyond it without really addressing the roots of it. Uh, and meditation is tremendously helpful, but it also helps to um, sh- open up another door at the same time. But also, um, we started talking about mindfulness. There are all kinds of ways of doing that, that when the telephone rings to stop. Rushing around, ring, ring. Or let the red light at the stop sign um, stop the mind. Just be present for the red light rather than antsy to get on. There are many, many techniques like that. Thich Nhat Hanh has a great many of them. But then there's what she called plain mindfulness. She said, what about just being plain mindful? All day long, just to stop and be grateful. It's, it's how we sit, actually. Um, as we sit, our mind is squirting out thoughts and feelings and ideas and um, brilliant notions and ridiculous things all the time. And we can't fight it off. We can't cut it off. We can't change it, really. But we can be present. And as soon as we're present, it's like we're underneath all that that's going on. We don't have to be affected by it. My teacher always said, when we sit, everything that we think is a lie. That's such a relief. Then we don't have to deal with it at all. Just let it all go. It's the beauty of thinking, of sitting without thinking. We think, but we don't think. We think and we let every single thought take off. Suzuki Roshi used to say, uh, you can watch your thoughts go by, but don't invite them in for tea. Don't have to entertain them. I. 
called my insurance agent yesterday because the um, insurance company has stopped uh, selling insurance in California. So I had to talk about arranging things and he was filling out a form and asking who I was and what I did. And, and he said, oh man, I really need meditation. He said, it's so hard, he said, and I'm, my brain is going all the time and I don't, I don't, I, I don't know how to stop. So we had this, a long conversation about how it is with all of us how hard it is to find just 10 minutes to stop and do something else, to be something else. It's as if we get so committed to our idea about ourselves that we can't stop. And yet that idea is just an idea, but the reality is what's happening in the moment. And in the moment, whatever we're doing is pretty precious and pretty rare. They say being born a human being, having a chance to be this and do this is so rare that we shouldn't waste a minute of it. But then the question is, what is a waste? How do we do this? Over Christmas, I spent a couple of weeks in Austria and Switzerland. There are two retreat places there that were founded by uh, my teacher and other people, Brother David Stendhal Rost being one of them. And um, they're off the road so that uh, the one in Austria is about a mile or more off the road, up in the mountains. You have to walk through the deep snow, a mile through the forest, with these huge granite mountains over, looking over, and this this great valley down below. It's very, very beautiful. And then you come to a chalet, a beautiful chalet, uh, that has a, a zendo in it beautiful sitting space. It's unbelievable, really. And I thought, well, I'd been there in the summer, and then it's a nice hike. You put your rucksack on your back, and you walk in. It's very pleasant, and there are cows in the meadows, and it's, you hear the bells from the valley, the church bells ringing. It's, it's just like Heidi. Um, but in the winter, in the dead of winter, I thought nobody will come. You know, it's a session, of course, I'll go, I'll be glad to go, but who will come? Twenty people came. Twenty people walked through the snow to sit for a week. It was really, it was a wonderful sit. And it made me feel all over again what this response is in us about it. The same response that people felt in, in Buddhist time. We meet something, we taste something, and part of us resists it. Part of us doesn't have time for it. Part of it, I think, is a little bit afraid of it. And the other part is so hungry and thirsty and so glad for a chance, 
even if it's a moment to sit quietly and breathe in the middle of our day, how grateful we are for a chance to do that. Much less to hike through <laughs> through piles of snow. <coughs> It's even even possible to get tangled up in too much thinking and getting involved with the practice. Um, We can read so much about it and form so many ideas. Um, There's some wonderful readings, uh, beautiful books now. When I first began to practice, there was almost nothing to read at all. Now there is so much. Every Sangha puts out a little pamphlet. Um, Their magazines, their books galore. And it's easy to become kind of um, saturated with dharmic words. And even those words, of course, are extra. They're pointing somewhere, but they're not it. And if our head gets so full of even the dharmic ideas, we lose that basic sense of freedom that is our real nature. That basic sense of kind of what Thich Nhat Hanh called the still mountain. That isn't touched by all that's going on to which we return every time the bell rings. Our own dear self, you could say. So that's not very long, um, but maybe that's enough. And we can have some kind. We can have a discussion, questions, comments, your experiences, hiking through the snow. looking at how it was in Buddha's time and looking at our time and questioning how we live and how we can live in our expression of following Buddha, I guess you could say, although that sounds kind of corny, um, of of how this resonance in our very noisy and very fast um, way of living, uh, how that easily obliterates our sense of 
of um, our way, our true way. And it's, it's a challenge for us, I think, to stay tuned to it. Um, and having, done, having experienced uh, that uh, Austrian mountain and seeing how they do it, how they actually provide a place for people to step completely out, so far out that they're off of the highway and walking and in nature and and just kind of exploring in my mind the ways that we we could be doing that um, including as I say just stopping often in our day very often wherever we are and if we can't sit under a tree or in a little hut we can at least breathe for a little bit and let our obsessions go so I, I, it's kind of a, a vague question in a way, or a big question, so big that it doesn't have one answer. It's, it's how to do this thing, which is different every day. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course. We we think for a reason. It's it's our brilliance and our genius as human beings that we can think. Uh, and and certainly no teaching is about throwing thinking away, um, or throwing the self away for that matter. Though it sounds like it sometimes, uh, but it's seeing through it and finding the time and place to make use of thinking. If we're thinking in the middle of a concert, for instance, we miss the music. If we think in the middle of of meditation, then we miss the meditation. So that that, uh, there's a time and place for thinking. It's a tool, you could say. And more than a tool, it's, it's, as I say, our genius in a way. Uh, it comes who knows from where. It's bubbling up from, from somewhere in us. And we can't really claim our thoughts. They, they're very surprising, aren't they, often? Who knows where they come from? 
not surprising when they repeat them. Well, that's right. That's right. And they can be a real pain. <laughs> so it's, it's a matter of using careful discrimination, which is one of the aspects of, of this practice that it's important to remember that our mind is able to carefully discriminate and really see how things fit and whether they're useful or not and see through. Uh, Everything, in a way, is transparent. And so we don't have to hold on to anything in order to see it. We can just see it and let it go. When I was at Chikoji, sometimes people would come from school, classes, their teachers would bring them up and want to teach them to sit. And so they would sit and, and with all the instructions and and uh, some of them would have notebooks and they'd be sitting like this and then suddenly, oh, they'd sit and write something down and then they'd sit some more and then write something down and they were just gathering up their thoughts as they came through. Um, a kind of misunderstanding of meditation. Uh, it actually, our, our mind is cooking ideas, I think, all the time. So even if we don't write things down, the genius ideas that we get as we sit, if it's a real thought, a real concern, it will continue to cook and will come up and serve us and help us. We can trust our mind that way. We don't have to consider it as, as some kind of enemy or something bad that we get rid of. But trust it and know that it serves and holds and carries us. So we don't have to hold so tightly to any of it. Okay? Yes. This is an old thought that you brought up. Uh, I always used to wonder that when in old times, in Buddha's time, when people left their homes, which seems very good in our system, they do all they do to leave our knowledge and go into wood. But what about the spouse and the kids when those people left them? It was a big problem. Uh, When they started, they didn't know what their problems were going to be. It was all spontaneous. And so the Vinaya is this long list of rules that they slowly, slowly accumulated. If if somebody made a mistake, they would say, oh, uh, let's write this down so this won't happen again. It's very interesting to read those rules. Very interesting. You get a, a strange view of the way things were then. Um, and that was one of the first ones. When uh, Buddha went back home to his parents' house, uh, and he persuaded his son and his cousins and various other relatives who all left and joined him and abandoned their family. And his father got very upset about that and said, now, Siddhartha, look, you can't do this anymore, you know, or I guess he wasn't called Siddhartha anymore, but Buddha, you mustn't do this. You must 
be sure that the family gives permission first. And so there's a little sort of home-leaving ceremony between the person who's leaving and his, his spouse or family. And even then it's a hardship. And sometimes if a husband left, a wife would go with him and they would both ordain. Uh, and, and a great many people didn't ordain at all, but stayed home and then Buddha would keep coming back to the same village so that they all had a relationship without um, leaving home. The whole notion of renunciation is another sort of part of our puzzle of modern day living about our practice. We can't usually, most of us, and wouldn't leave home in that way. And yet there's some kind of turning in us that turns toward the practice that could be called renunciation, that we change our life. The way Rilke said in his poem, you must change your life, that there's a kind of turning that we can do even in the midst of the San Francisco Bay Area in 2005 without leaving home. That in itself is, is a very interesting question for us. What, what is it that we um, abandon? Mm-hmm. And what I'm noticing lately is how much suffering has been a part of motivating my, myself through life. Yes. And that um, through almost all of my life, you know, many of the directions that I've taken, the things I've done, even on a day-to-day basis, are motivated through suffering. M- much self and my brain and my mind uses that to direct me and to, to, it creates painful imagined scenarios to motivate myself one way or yeah. yeah. and there's this it's, you know, I have many subtle facets to it and, and meditating you know, coming to realize that more and more even to the point of realizing that Not doing that, I now become afraid of not doing Yes. Because now I won't know how to do anything. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And now I'm suffering, not not <laughs> <laughs> You're knocking the pins right out from under you, aren't you? <laughs> you can renounce one day and then you have to renounce the next day too it's kind of like all of the vows that we take when I say that it sounds a little trite
to live your life the same way, you know, for 40, 50 years, you, you have these deeply ingrained compulsions that you have And when you try to not do that, it becomes very But isn't it great that we're lucky enough to live long enough to actually consider doing things another way? You know, in, in most of human race, you know, going all the way back to Lucy, we didn't live long enough. We just had kids and died. Uh, and now, now it's, it's a great opportunity. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're already there in a way. <laughs> if you can say it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you like to switch your legs around and sit for a little bit longer before we go? That'd be okay. Be sure you're comfortable. That's most important.